it doesn't always make sense why you, as somebody so marvelous and wonderful and full of love, the author of all creation, would want to spend time with us. But you are here now. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Take a seat. Sneaking across the back there, it reminded me of uh, the scene in Mrs. Doubtfire when uh, Robin Williams is dashing in and out of the toilet, pretending to be the uh, Mrs. Doubtfire and then also to pretending to be himself. I don't know if it is possible to pretend to be yourself. Uh, but uh, So I'm now in my uh, other disguise. I don't know whether I'm a woman at this point or whether that was a woman over there. But we'll, that's where the analogy ends, I think. I'm going to grab a glass of water, one second. And then we're going to read our passage from the Old Testament this evening. The passage is from Joshua 10, 1 to 15. I don't have the, the page number in the Bibles. The first one there can shout it out if they, if they want to. 100 and... Sorry? 124. It bodes well for this evening if I can't listen. Oh, Hannah's Bible is different. Let's see what's 124 and then just do that instead. That sounds good. So what was, it? What was the actual one in the end? 21. 121. Excellent. Hopefully we're all there. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their ally. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to help us. Quickly, come up and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Machedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O son, stand still over Gibeon, 
O moon over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashai. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. This is also the word of the Lord. If you would mind just uh, praying with me as we come uh, to hear what the Lord has to say. Father, we thank you for these incredible stories of your might and power for your children. And we pray that you would come and speak to us this evening. That the words that are mine would be forgotten and pushed away, but the words that are yours would lodge themselves in our brains and in our hearts and stay there. In your name we pray. Amen. I've also forgotten to grab a piece of technology. If I can't work it, then I'll blame the technology. So one day, there were three men, Joe, Bob, and Dave, and they were hiking in the wilderness when they came upon a large, raging, and violent river. They needed to get to the other side, but they had no idea how to do so. There was no way across. So Joe prayed to God, saying, Please, God, give me the strength to cross this river. So poof, just like that, God gave him big arms and strong legs, and he was able to swim across the river in about two hours. But he nearly drowned several times on the way. Seeing Joe struggle to get across the river, Dave prayed to God, and he said, Please, God, give me the strength and the tools to cross this river. Whoosh! God gave him a rowboat, and he was able to row across this raging torrent in about one hour, after nearly capsizing the boat a couple of times. Bob had seen how this had worked out for both Joe and Dave, so he also prayed to God, and he said, Please, God, give me the strength and the tools and the intelligence to cross this river. Whoosh! God turned him into a woman. She looked at the map, hiked a couple of hundred metres upstream, and then walked across the bridge. (laughs) Sometimes with God, we have to be quite specific about what we're praying for. But we also can be expectant that he will answer. We have a God who has the power to make the sun stand still. Our Heavenly Father can part oceans, move mountains, raise people from the dead if his children ask him. My problem with this is it doesn't always seem to work that way for me. In fact, the opposite. It seems to very rarely work that way for me. I have prayed many things that don't seem to have been answered, at least not in the way that I want them to be. For example, I've asked God to change the weather. I've asked him to move the traffic. I've even asked him to make the England football team good. And evidence definitely shows that he clearly hasn't answered those prayers sometimes. 
Now, it's also pretty obvious that those can be quite selfish prayers. And that's probably why they haven't been answered. But there's other prayers that we pray that come from a more honest and humble and real place. Prayers that are asking for healing or from deliverance. Or deliverance from suffering even. And these prayers also seem to feel like they go unanswered sometimes. And I land up asking myself, when we see Joshua praying for the sun to stand still and the sun stands still, how can I make sure that the awesome power of God can work for me? What can we do to make sure that God is on our side? What can we do so that when we ask God to make the sun stand still in our lives, that he will answer our request? I don't think there's a right answer to this question. And there's definitely no internet style, you won't believe these seven easy steps that will guarantee an answer to any prayer. So that's not what we're doing this evening. (laughs) I think it's dangerous to think that there are a set of steps to follow and that will guarantee an answer. It's not how it works. The mystery of God can be just as important as the power of God. And I'm comforted when we see, for example, in the story of Job. He goes through all this great trial and tribulation, this immense suffering. At the end of it, he meets God, and God explains things to him. And God's revelation, uh, Job's revelation isn't, oh, well, it all makes sense now. His revelation is this, and he says, Surely I spoke of things that I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. We can't know exactly how God works, but we can follow the guidance he gives us in the Bible. So today, our passage in Joshua 10 shows us that the fear of God must lead to faithful obedience that fully trusts in the power of the Lord. So we'll start with the fear of God. There's an important distinction here between the fear of God and an earthly fear. Joshua 9 and 10, as we read, handily show us an example of godly fear right after two examples of this earthly fear. In chapter 9, we have the Gibeonites, and as we've read in chapter 10, we have Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem. Now, we we won't turn to chapter 9 and read that as well, Um, But I'll try and give you a summary here of the story of the Gibeonites, and it gives us some context for where we land up at the beginning of this story. The people of Gibeon had got wind of what the Israelites had done to Ai, where they'd brought a city and its people to the ground, and they'd also heard about what they'd done to Jericho. They'd also heard that the Israelites were under command from the God of Moses to take the whole land and wipe out all its existing inhabitants. So the people of Gibeon knowing that these people were on the march to wipe them out, felt fear. It's definitely a fear that I understand and probably would have felt myself. (laughs) Their fear panicked them. It made them come up with a cunning plan to deceive the Israelites. Uh, If you're a British person like me, this is where my blackadder brain comes in and I hear a cunning plan going around over and over my head. Unfortunately, this is international, so that's a very strange reference to bring up right now. Usually, though... Cities that don't want to fight would use 
sweet-talking diplomacy and said they would send their best wine, their best food, their animals and anything else to try and make peace. But the Gibeonites knew this wouldn't work. Israel was under command to wipe out anyone who lived in the promised land. So instead, what they did was to put put on the opposite of their Sunday best. They wore their hand-me-down clothes. They took their cheapest out-of-date wine and food and pretended that they had traveled a long way to come and make an alliance with the Israelites. Their logic was that if the Israelites thought that they weren't inhabitants of the Promised Land, then they couldn't wipe them out. And amazingly, the ruse, the plan, it worked for a very short time. (laughs) After three days, the Israelites noticed that the people next to them living in Gibeon that they, were planned, that they thought they were going to attack, looked suspiciously like the people that had come and pleaded with them to make an alliance. They weren't fooled anymore, so they confronted the Gibeonites who confessed that their fear had made them resort to deception. Fortunately, the Israelites were a people of their word, and they kept their oath of alliance. However, because their earthly fear had clouded their thinking and judgment, because the Gibeonites' earthly fear had clouded the way that they thought, and the way that they acted, they were cursed to serve as lumberjacks and waterboys for the Israelites for the rest of their days. Acting out of earthly fear had a consequence for them. And this leads us to Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem. He had seen the destruction of Ai and of Jericho again, and he'd also now seen, as we read at the beginning of the passage, that an even greater city, Gibeon, with even better fighters, had made an alliance with the Israelites. So from his point of view... This unstoppable army was even more unstoppable. Their impending destruction was even more impending. Adonai Zedek reacted in fear and terror. And he spread this message of fear and terror to the other Amorite kings. He persuaded them that the only possible course of action was to join together as one army and make one heroic last stand. However, This was also driven out of earthly fear. It had clouded his thinking. He did not have the fear of the Lord, and instead he had the fear of what the Israelites had been doing all around them. His focus was on the wrong place. And with this fear motivating him, he played right into God's plans and into Joshua's hands. And instead of having to go around five fortified cities one at a time, the Israelites' enemies were now marching towards them as one in the open. And if we just step away from the passage in Joshua for a moment and go to our reading from Mark, we also saw earthly fear there. When Jesus turned up to the ruler's house, everyone thought that he was too late. In my mind, it makes me think that the Swiss must have difficulty with how God's timing works sometimes. It can be very un-Swiss. It's not as punctual as you want it to be. But the fear of those in the house told them that the ruler's daughter was dead. And if she was dead, there was nothing that could be done. Jesus was too late in their minds. And when he turned up, he was confused. And by the commotion and the wailing, he told them the girl was asleep, not dead. And what did their earthly fear make them do? He read it in verse 40. They laughed in the face of God. 
thankfully, we come to Joshua. And in our passage today, Joshua helps demonstrate what it means to have the fear of God. When you experience the awesome power of God face to face, as Joshua had done at times, it can be tempting to cower and lie prostrate, something which Joshua actually did in chapter 7 when Sam covered it a couple of weeks ago. But when you experience the terrific might of God, you also discover the unbreaking nature of God's promises. God's love means that our fear of him should be one of complete reverence and respect combined with the, priest, with the peace that we have God with us. What's one thing that God says time and time again when he meets face to face with people in the Bible? He says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. He says it to Moses. He says it to Joshua back in chapter 7. He says it to Mary. He says it to the disciples. He says it to us. The list goes on. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. The fear of God means that we shouldn't doubt the plans he has for us or his ability to make them happen. If Joshua had acted with earthly fear when this great combined army was marching towards the Gibeonites and towards his doorstep, he would have thought that he was doomed. Indeed, we see the Gibeonites said, please send help. They thought they were doomed. But instead, he could see how it fitted perfectly into God's plan. God was telling him not to be afraid. God says it in our passage, do not be afraid, for I am with you. So the fear of God meant that Joshua was not afraid. This godly fear meant that he did not have earthly fear. It's a great paradox of faith. What's another thing that God says to those that fall in fear in his presence? when they, he turns up in a great, powerful beam of light or a fire, and they fall flat on their face. We saw it in chapter 7 again when Sam covered it the other week. Joshua was prostrate in front of God on his face, and God is bemused and replies, Stand up! What are you doing down on your face? He commands us in his presence not to be paralyzed by fear, but to stand up. He spurs us to act. He spurs us into action and faithful obedience. If God is asking us to do something, we should not be afraid. That doesn't mean that there won't be difficulties as we step out in faith for him. He definitely doesn't promise that it will be plain sailing from an earthly point of view. But he does promise that he will be there with us and that the consequences of serving in faith for him will be beyond anything we can possibly imagine. So we should respond obediently, faithfully, confidently, knowing that our fearsome God is with us. We've already seen in Joshua many times what happens when he and the Israelites obey God's command. But we've also seen the very clear consequences of disobedience. The story of Achan's sin in chapter 7 resulted in death and defeat. Even the journey to the promised land was delayed for a whole generation because of the Israelites' disobedience when they feared the world instead of fearing God. 
But when they are obedient, when they obey God's word, the reward is incredible. By doing what God has instructed, they brought the mighty walls of Jericho down with the sound of trumpets. And here in chapter 10, trusting in God's promise that God had given their enemies into their hands already, the Israelites fearlessly pursued this band of five armies. And the result, as you read, an utterly resounding victory, majorly assisted by the power of this amazing God. So Joshua had already experienced God's imagine, and Joshua, sorry, had already experienced God's unimaginable power. His power to part rivers and bring down cities and feed the Israelites. But even then, I'm sure he was still amazed about the new ways that God used his power to deliver on his promises to his children. We read that he brought down hailstones that wiped out over half an army. I'm sure it took Joshua's breath away. And it's clear that Joshua fully trusted this power. He truly believed that if he prayed for the sun to stand still, then God would make the sun stand still. As you read, he prayed for the sun to stand still and the moon to stop. And what do we read in verse 13? God listened. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for about a full day. Now, I'm going to be honest here and a little bit vulnerable. The scientific part of me really struggles with this part of the passage. A lot. It doesn't make any rational sense. The sun stood still. How could the sun possibly stand still? And the original uh, title for this talk that Sam had given me was The Sun Stands Still, God or Physics. Now, I appreciate, particularly with Joe and Jordash here and their amazing intelligence, that I'm not the best equipped to go into this. But I did have a look around uh, and look at how people have tried to explain how this incredible event happened. Some have explained it with God, with science, with both, with neither, with ancient mythology. It turns out there's an awful lot of different ways that people have argued that God made, how God made the sun stand still. Some think that the earth slowed its rotation. Others think it was an eclipse. Others still think that it was a clever refraction of light. Or perhaps it was a manipulation of God's perception of time so that they felt it was two days when actually it was still one. I even started, and I genuinely did this for about half an hour. You can go on Wikipedia and you can look up when eclipses happened throughout the whole of history because we can work it out. It's, it's mappable. So from... Uh, the 3rd to the 2nd century BC, uh, and they usually happen once or twice a year, uh, you can go through, and I thought I might go through and see if there are any mapped with the possible time of Joshua, but that would have taken a little bit too long, and I suspect it would have been futile, because I realised I don't think how God did it actually matters. I, as a human, want a rational explanation But the wonder and mystery of God is sometimes just that. A wonder and a mystery. It's that revelation of Job again. Surely I spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. 
That's not to say that we shouldn't have scientific curiosity. We definitely should. God wants us to find out more about find out more and more about his world, about how it works, about how he can help us to use it to make things better here on this planet. In Genesis, he makes us stewards of his creation. And it takes a pretty rubbish steward who doesn't take an interest in what they're looking after. Any scientist will tell you, the more they discover, the more they are amazed about what they find, about how things work. And the more they discover, the more they find out they don't know. As Einstein said, science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. However, we should not forget that sometimes it's okay to be comfortable with the mystery and power of God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. What one must not do is to rule out the supernatural as the one possible explanation. And, as I said, there are many explanations to how God made the sun stand still. And there's many explanations as to how God could use his mastery of science to make this happen. What's important is that we truly believe that he could have used every single one of them. Joshua knew that his supernatural God was capable of anything and everything. The fear of God in Joshua made him act out of faithful obedience, fully trusting in the power of the Lord. God had promised him something, and if God promises, God delivers. In the story of Joshua, God's promises are to his people, the Israelites. But today, we mustn't forget that we are living in a time when, because of Jesus' epoch-defining sacrifice, anyone who believes in him will become God's children. You may have spotted earlier that I phrased a question slightly wrong. I asked, what can we do to make sure God is on our side? I think what I should really be asking is what can we do to make sure that we are on his? And the answer is to have faith, to believe in the power of God to do more than we can ever fathom. Again, in our reading from Mark, the lady who had been bleeding for 12 years and doctors had found no way to help her was healed because of her faith. Now, her earthly fear told her that when Jesus singled her out and said, who touched my robe? She thought she was in trouble. But because she believed in the power of Jesus, because she acted in faith, the power of God healed her. As Jesus said in verse 34 of that reading in Mark, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And sometimes when we pray, we expect or demand the answer to be immediate. And we get frustrated when we think the time for God to act has passed. It's too late. But again, in Mark, in the story of the ruler and his daughter, it didn't end up where I left it earlier with people laughing in the face of God. It ends up with Jesus taking the hand of a dead girl and telling her to get up. And the mystery and the power of God means that she gets up.
And I really love the simplicity here at which death is overcome. He says, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, get up. And that's it. The power of God overcoming death. In God's own time and his, in his own way. If we pray with the fear of God that leads to faithful obedience, fully trusting in the power of the Lord, then be prepared to be amazed at what the answer will be. It might not always be as visceral as the sun standing still, but it could still be just as wonderful. I remember the pastor at my previous church back in England. He was a, again, I don't know what it is with pastors in my life, but they're always least this tall. Uh, and this guy was a rugby player, uh, so he was also a big, strong, burly man. And he would often turn up to church, uh, not often, he occasionally turns up to church with a black eye from playing rugby and quite often given to him by his own teammates. I don't know what that says about him or the way he plays rugby, but that's who he was. But he was also the chaplain at the local rugby club. Um, and one night, they were all having dinner together. It was like a season cele- an end-of-season celebration or something like that. Uh, and his teammates said to him, Hey, Vicar, you're holy. You should pray before we eat. So slightly reluctantly, he got in front of these uh, dozens and dozens again of big, rowdy, laddish men playing rugby. And he prayed. And as he prayed, he kept fighting the idea in his mind that he should pray for victory because the senior team were playing a match the next day. And he thought it would go wrong. He thought that they would laugh at him when they inevitably lost. Uh, And it would end up showing how futile his faith and belief was. But as he continued praying, he decided to step out in faith. The worst that could happen is that the club would have a funny anecdote about the time the vicar tried to get God on their team. He finished his prayer and carried on and forgot about it until the next day, when he heard the result. The team had won. Not only had they won, but they won with the biggest margin in their history. I actually sent this uh, to check that I'd remembered that correctly to him, and he did confirm it again yesterday by email that that's what's happened. He stepped out in faith, and it might not be the sun standing still, but God will answer. And when we pray, don't be scared to pray big. It's so easy to try and find a vague, I'm so guilty of this, to say, God, please act in the way that you feel you should act in this situation. Like, not saying what I would want to happen. That doesn't always mean that God will go, oh yeah, no, you were right and I was, I was wrong. But he wants us to step out in faith with our prayer, to trust that he has this unimaginable power to give to his children. Our fear of God must lead to faithful obedience that fully trusts in the power of the Lord. And as God said to Joshua when he faced a terrifying army, as Jesus said to the man whose daughter had just died, don't be afraid, just believe. Shall we pray? And actually, Charlie, as we pray, would you mind uh, playing the uh, uh, part of the song that we just sung, actually, during the offering? Uh, Our God is here. 
and he is here for us and he wants to listen to us he wants to know what we ask of him what we want from him and he wants to respond he wants to have his arms around his children Lord we thank you for your presence we thank you for the gift and sacrifice of Jesus to help us become your children we thank you that you have the power and might to overcome even death and we pray that you would encourage us this evening to speak out to you what is on our hearts things that we might be afraid to pray for things that you have promised us that you don't, we don't feel have been delivered that you would help us to come into your fearful presence to step out in faithful obedience and to trust in your unimaginable power Lord we we'll just take a moment to open up and lift those things to you Lord, you know what's on our hearts. You know what we're struggling with. You know what we're asking for. And I pray that you would be there answering our prayers and our questions, Lord. In your wonderful, awesome, holy, powerful name we pray. Amen.